following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. For the last several months, we have been in a sermon series in the book of Ephesians. We've been calling it Identity Formation. Um, because what we see in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is, is basically the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, when you believe the gospel, when you hear the good news of what Jesus has done on your behalf, something profound happens. You are reformed. You're recreated. You are a new creation. Or in other words, Jesus gives us a new identity. This means that what is most true about you profoundly changes the moment, the instant you put your faith in Jesus. You go from being an orphan of wrath, right? That, that's the way that you were before you came to Christ. An orphan of wrath now adopted and held by your heavenly Father. You go from being once far off, alienated from God, and now you are brought near. That is what is most true about you in this very moment, even if you don't feel that way. You go from being dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the ways of the world, to be now made alive instantaneously. In the moment of faith, you're recreated. You go from being a sinner, that's what your primary identity is, to now you're being called a saint who is actually raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. This is what's most true about us when our identity is in Christ. Now, this, this gospel identity, a lot of people you know, think, okay, well, this is going to change my future, right? This changes where I'm going to spend eternity. I was going to the bad place, now I'm going to the good place. Well, okay, but, but that's sort of a truncated understanding of what the gospel actually accomplishes. It doesn't just change our future. It changes the way that we live right now in this very moment. By God changing our being, he, there, he then changes our doing. Unfortunately, this radical and total life change doesn't happen overnight. It would be a lot easier if it did, I tell you that. The change that we want to see in our lives, that we, when we hear about this good life that Jesus wants to give us, it doesn't just the next day after you get saved, the next day you don't wake up and boom, it's like a hard reset. Right? God doesn't do that. God doesn't wipe your hard drive and install a new program that now you live a completely perfect life, that you've got everything figured out, that it's just honky-dory from here on out. That's, that doesn't happen. And if that were true, 
Passages like Ephesians chapters four, five, and six would be, you wouldn't find it in your Bible. It would be useless. And following Jesus would be a lot easier. Instead, what happens, the day after you're saved, you wake up, surprisingly, mostly the same. It's true. The day after you're saved, you wake up mostly the same. Now, that that doesn't mean you haven't underwent some massive heart change. Your your heart has profoundly changed, but when you wake up, you're going to still have the same character flaws. You're going to still have the same sin tendencies. You're going to have the same worldview. You're going to have the same kind of behavior, the same sort of patterns of life that you've been having all the, the, the life previous to this moment in time. And that's because your outer life hasn't yet caught up with what's going on in the inner life. And, and this is part of what it means to be a Christian, is we live in this already but not yet. Like we're already called saints, the holy ones, yet not all of my behavior is saintly. Not all of my action is holy, right? There's, there's a lot of sin sort of mixed in there still. Now, when Jesus saves us, he doesn't save us and leave us where we are. He doesn't bring us in the family of God and say, hey, man, I'm just glad you got in the door. I'm glad you're kind of, you like, we've, we've signed the documents to, for your adoption, and we're just going to drop your stuff in the doorway. And No, no, no. Jesus doesn't leave you there. He brings us in to this deep and meaningful life. He wants to transform the entirety of our lives. And this is what, uh, like back, if you remember way back, I mean, like going back to the blacktop days, uh, of our series through Colossians where we say Jesus over everything, right? The fact that the Jesus changes everything in our lives. Not just what we do on, for an hour on Sunday mornings. Everything is up for transformation. And the moment you become a Christian, yeah, there's this profound life change, but what's also happening is you are now enter into this new process called sanctification. It's this lifelong journey that you're now on. You don't, you don't really have a choice in this. It's Jesus saves you, you're, 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 you're saved, you found salvation, and now he sets you on this journey of sanctification, and Jesus walks with you as you walk alongside of the church. And it's in this process that we call sanctification It's where the real you in Christ, right, the true self, which is found in Christ Jesus, is actualized. It's where the inner self now becomes expressed in an outer way. In other words, it's where your gospel position increasingly becomes practical. Here's what I mean. So when, when Paul calls you a saint, the holy one, well, Sanctification means now I start to live into that identity. Now I start living more holy of a life. Now, that doesn't mean we live a completely holy life because every week we're going to come back together and we're going to confess sin together because we're sinners. Like, like everybody, you can look around the room and you say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. That's the reality. But as we're being sanctified, hopefully the Lord's working in a way where, where we sin less, that he's purifying our intentions, our desires. Here's another one, adopted. Say, hey, you've been adopted. That's your position. You've been brought into the family of God. Well, now we start living, like as we are sanctified, we live out of that identity where I now take part in a relationship with my heavenly father. It's not just this title. It's actually a practicality in my life. Or another one, like we've been looking at the last chunk of chapter four, a member of the body. It's not just a title that you have. It's something that actually gets put into motion, right? It becomes a practical part of your life. You live in community with the rest of the body and on mission with the body. 
And so this tells us that the gospel doesn't just change my eternity, where I'm going to end up for the rest of my existence. It tells us that the gospel changes the right here and the right now. It changes daily life. It changes all of life. Now, I think that this is one of the most glorious claims of the Bible. It's that you can change. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says you are not stuck where you are. The, the things about yourself that you're like, dang it, why am I doing that again? I can't believe, you know, like you're kicking, why did I, I just hate that I did it. Why is it, oh, you know, I got those. I, you probably, I know for sure I've got those. It says that you're not stuck in a rut. See, in the gospel, old dogs learn new tricks. That's good news. Right, you're not stuck. And the change that the gospel brings is not this superficial, shallow, temporary kind of change that you might find if you go pick up a self-help book in Barnes & Noble. The kind of change that the gospel provides is this deep, inside-out, and lasting change. And that's what verses 17 through 24 is really all about. It's the process of change. Or, or in other words, it's how we change. And to sum it all up, I'm just going to take you right to the middle, right where it just kind of punches it. In verse 22 through 24, here's what Paul says. Here's what change looks like. Here's the process of change. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says the process of change is a twofold process. Two things have to happen. For, for real, meaningful change, lasting inside out change, gospel change to happen, there's a twofold process of putting off the old and putting on the new. It's like changing spiritual clothes. If, if our old clothes, our old self is dirty, filthy rags, he says, take them off, throw them in the, throw them in the, the hamper. And then put on new, clean, fresh clothes. See, this is what we're talking about. This is the process of change. Put off to put on. And today, what we're going to do, we're just going to look at the first part of the process, the first piece of of put off the old self. Hopefully, I have time to do that. (laughs) But what I want to do this morning is answer three questions. If, If the Bible says change is possible, and the process of change is put off the old self, put on the new self, let's ask these three questions. First of all, what is the old self? Let's identify it. What is the old self? Then, then why? Why should I put it off? Right? And the third question I want to answer is how? How do I do it? Like get kind of practical. How do I put off the old self? Now, simply put, when we talk about the old self, what is the old self? Simply put, the old self is basically everything that you were before you met Jesus. Verse 22 says, the old self belongs to your former manner of life. Paul is saying that there's a definitive turning point in your life that when you put your faith in Jesus, that something changes. In 2 Corinthians, he's talking, the old is gone, the new has come. And when he talks about this old self that belongs to the former manner of life, this includes, he, he kind of, he sort of, he gives a, a character study of it. He, he gives sort of a profile of the old self. And in doing so here in verses 17 through 24, he includes the condition of your soul and the conduct. 
So the old self, like what's the condition of your soul and, and the way that you live, the manner in which you live. And, and what's really important for us to understand is that the two are inextricably connected. That the condition of your soul, what's going on at the heart level, will inevitably, inevitably produce fruit in your life. Good fruit or bad fruit? That's the question. And as Paul takes a look at the old self, he gives us an honest, and I think this is one of the most compelling pieces of Scripture, like parts of Scripture, is that the Bible is really honest with us. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It, 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 even, even if you go back and you look at the heroes of the faith, like Abraham, David, all these guys that like, we prop up and like, oh, these are superstar people that were faithful to God. It's like the Bible has a lot of negative things to say about them because it's honest. And so the Bible kind of turns and looks at us and gives us this honest assessment of, of who we were before we met Christ. And it's, it's quite an unflattering profile, to be honest. Let me, I'm just going to read through it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack it here as we go. So join me here, uh, Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Actually, I'm going to stop before that, but you'll find out. Now I say this, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So you see that even there, the no longer walk, he, he's associating that with the former ways. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, here's how they walk. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let's stop there. In the words of Michael Scott, he really went after our intelligence there. <laughs> you see that? He says, listen, the Gentiles, your former ways was a way of a futility, a futility of mind. You had a darkened understanding it's because of your ignorance that was in you. Like, he's really getting after the fact that, man, we had no idea what we were doing. We were fumbling through life in the dark. Now, life is already hard enough as it is, but if you turn out the lights, like, you're stumbling around. You're tripping over everything. You're stubbing your toe. You've got no perception of reality. You have no, no idea of which way is up. It's like, it's like you just were twirled around in circles and you're trying to walk in a straight line. You have no idea because you can't see straight. You have no perception of reality, of, of life, how it actually is. And because the eyes of our mind are darkened, we can't think straight, we can't see clearly, what we're doing is we're living into the opposite of Proverbs 3, which says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He'll make your path straight. Instead, we're doing the inverse. We're not, we're not leaning on the Lord. We're not trusting in his ways. We're, we're leaning on our own understanding. And because we're leaning on our own understanding, we're walking some crooked paths. And if you're walking crooked paths, what's going to happen is you're going to stub your toe. You're going to run into a tree. You're going to fall into a hole. And Paul says, he boils it down to this. He says, it's because we're ignorant. It's because we're ignorant. We, he says, our ignorance is in this, 
the resources that we need to make it through life, to have a light to our path, to walk a straight path, the resources that we need to make it in life are available to us, yet we insist on doing life without those resources, namely God. We do life in our own power, our own way, our own idea of what is right and wrong. And it's, it's not going to work out right. Now, sometimes this, this ignorance is ignorant. Like, there, there's such thing as, ig, like, innocent ignorance. You just don't know what you don't know. Like, you're walking in the, around in the dark not realizing that there's such thing as light. Some of us are in that spot, walking around in the dark, not really realizing that there's a better way. But sometimes, and I think a lot of times, it's not this innocent arrogance. It's actually a willful ignorance. It's obstinance. It's like, it's like this. It's like, yeah, I know there's such thing as light, but I don't want it. Don't you dare touch that light switch. Right? That's... That's what it sounds like. That's, that's the arrogance. That's the, the ignorant, the, the willful, obstinate ignorance that, that we just mark the way that we lived our lives. Now, when you live in darkness, it will have an effect on your heart. Like, we need light. It's like a plant. Think of this. If you put a house plant in a closet, it will wither up because it's made for light. So we, we were made for light. Like, you don't go out in the sun, you're gonna have a lot of, you're gonna have a vitamin D issue. You're probably gonna get sick a lot. There's gonna be all kinds of implications that happen if you're not in, in the light, in a, a physical standpoint. See, we were, we were made to be in the light. And so if we're in the darkness, what happens, it has an effect on our heart. It hardens our hearts. It, it gets cold and hard. Paul says, he, he talks about this later on. He says, um, Where's he at here? I'll take you right to it. He says in verse 18, see, we're darkened in our understanding, so there's this darkness that happens because of the ignorance that is in us due to their hardness of heart. So there's a callousness. They've become callous in verse 19. There's a hardness of heart that happens, and, and in this callousness, in this hardness of heart, what happens is we become dismissive and disinterested and outright resistant toward God. That we, we just want to push him away. And, and the accusation, the, the finger-wagging accusation that we, we spew out in the face of God is, God, God, you don't know any better. I know it. I know what I need. I know what my life should, should look like. And we just wag that finger in the face of God. And what happens is, as we push away from God, we start to develop an immunity to God. Like, like we just, a hardness, a layer, a callousness that we just, it, it's like we become impenetrable. C.S. Lewis talks about this, like if you don't want to break your heart, tuck it away, far deep away, where nobody else can reach it. And, and in the process, you tuck your heart away, you put it out of, out of God's reach, what's going to happen is that your heart, yeah, nobody's going to break it, but it's going to become unbreakable. Right? Your heart gets so hard that Jesus, that his sweetness, his love, his grace can't get through the walls. So we get resistant, we push back. It's like what Romans, Paul talks about this in Romans 1. It's where we trade in um, worship of the creator for worship of the creature. 
We, we trade in our interaction. We trade in the fellowship. We trade in the relationship that we are meant to have with God, to walk in the light, to be in the light as he is in the light, and we trade it in for lesser things. That's what we want. So, so we push God out and we pull in these other things. And in fact, that's what verse 19 talks about, where Paul says that, that in, in becoming, uh, having hardness of heart, we become callous, and they've given themselves up to sensu- sensu- sensuality, that's the right word, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, there's this exchange happening. In the hardness of heart, we give up God and we grab, gravitate towards sensuality. We gravitate towards these impurities that are not meant for us. Now, C.S. Lewis says, did I, I quoted him twice already. We're killing it today. C.S. Lewis has this thing where he says, listen, like cars are meant for petrol. That's gas. That's that's an English way to say gas. As cars are meant for gasoline, the human's humanity is meant to run on God. The heart was made for God. And when we choose to put other things into our hearts, what's going to happen is, is that we cannot operate the, God, the way that God intended us to operate. We're trying to operate our lives without God and, and to fill the gas tank of our life. We're using sensuality, and he says that we're greedy, not just we, have, we dabble in, in impurities, but we're greedy for these every kind of impurity. Now, the reason for this, the reason why we, we trade in God for these sensuality and, and impurities is because our hearts in the old self, the old self's heart is rooted in unbelief. That's, that's the default state of the old self. It's we cannot believe what is true about God and ourselves. And one of the driving thoughts that, that we believe or one of the unbeliefs that we have that sort of governs our life is that God is not good enough. That it has to be God plus this. And some of us are just like, you know, ditch the God stuff. It's just this. This is what is going to satisfy me. This is what's going to make me feel whole. And this is what Paul talks about, these deceitful desires that we have. So, so we all have desires. God has given us desires. And, and all of our desires are, are meant to be, to, to lead us to our true deepest desire in Christ, to find God. So like food. Food is meant to be this desire that we have, this hunger that we feel. Is, yeah, it's meant to be a, a physical thing that leads us to the dinner table, but it's also meant to be a spiritual thing where we belly up to the table of God's grace, where we feast on Jesus. Right, God gives us a desire for, for intimacy right, with other people, but, but ultimately all of our intimacy is meant to like sort of pull into intimacy with God. That's what it, it's meant to point to because all of the relationships, even if you get the best of that person, are never enough to satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. That's why sex outside of marriage is so dangerous. You're trying to say, this thing's going to satisfy me. And you do it over and over and over again, and it just depletes you. It tears you down because you're filling yourself up with garbage. You're putting, like, liquid butter into a gas tank. It's not going to run. You do this with rest. See, like, even our, our desire to rest, even our desire to Sabbath, to enjoy creation, to just be for a moment, 
It's a desire that's meant to, to launch us toward the true Sabbath rest that's in Christ. See, all of these desires that we have are really meant to, to lead us into God's presence, to, like, to take advantage of what God has to offer us, his resources that he wants to pour out upon us. Yet when we have these deceitful desires, they get warped, and we try to satisfy these desires in ways that will hurt us, that will set us back, that will, will take us to a diminished kind of life. And in doing so, we're trading in God for this thing. Now, it's interesting here because when we chase things like, like food and relationships and sex and thrill and power and money and status, like underneath those, there, there's some good desire there. But when we warp them, when they get twisted, when, when it, it, it takes a, a deceitful twist, it's not going to go well. And in those moments, what we're trying to do is reach the transcendent. That's what all of those things, that, that's why we chase the thrill. We're trying to get in touch with the transcendent, something that makes us really feel alive. And so we go to pleasure sins. Sexuality, drunkenness, power, manipulation. See, these, these pleasure sins that sort of replace what we were meant to gravitate, like we were meant to gravitate towards God. Instead, we're going to these things, these filthy things. And ironically, the more that we do it, like we're chasing the transcendent, the more that we chase the transcendent in the wrong spots, the more it alienates us from God. The more it hardens our hearts, drives this chasm between us. Because all those things do is offer empty promises. That's all they have to offer are empty promises. It says, hey, do this, and then you'll be satisfied. Oh, just kidding. Do this and this, and then you'll be satisfied. And then just do that, and it just keeps going and going and going in empty promises. And if we keep giving ourselves over to the way of the old man, like this repeated over and over and over, giving ourselves greedy for, for every impurity, for sensuality, the definition of this is insanity. This is why Paul says you have a darkened understanding. The old self has a darkened understanding. And the, here's another thing that's just crazy. He says, it's so ironic that in our callousness, like, I don't know if, I've got calluses on my hands from, like, working out and stuff, and they're hard. Like, I could probably poke it with a needle, and I wouldn't feel anything. But if I moved my arm and poked myself with a needle, I'd feel it, right, pretty, pretty easily. If you were to tickle me with a feather on the arm, I could feel it. But if you try to tickle me on my calluses, I'm not going to feel nothing. can't feel it. It's like a lump of deadness. And the irony of being in the old self state, in our callousness, in our hardness, we're trying to chase sensuality. It, it, it's, it's, it's the irony that, that we have numbness, we can't feel anything, yet we're trying to tickle these pleasures. Now, this is why Paul says the old self is futile, dark in the mind, hard in the heart. It's, it's un, unbelieving. Like I said, it's not, very, not a very uh, positive outlook on, on the old way of life, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty blunt. And when we use the term old self, it might make it seem like that person, that self is, is ancient history, just in the rearview mirror. 
like totally gone. Those are the old days. But actually, Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. That old self is still lingering around here. It's, It's bumming on the corner. And this is why he says, put off the old self. He says, no longer walk in your old ways. Now, when he says that, that you have the old self, so that the, the new self is present because you've been made a new creation, the old self is still lingering around. When he says that you have two different selves, he's not saying that there are two different people occupying your body. Right? This is not a case of multiple personality disorder where you're oscillating between these two individuals within yourself. What Paul is talking about is as this new creation who still has the old self kind of lingering, we have two different sets of desires that are conflicting within us. Verse 24 talks about the new self has the desires for God, for righteousness, for living the way that God intended us to live, enjoying the full life which he provides for us. And the old self, the desires of the old self are that of sensuality and impurity for sinful desire. And so here we have the Christian life is marked by this internal tug of war between these two desires, the desires of the old self, the desires of the new self. In fact, this is why Paul says in Romans 7, listen, I don't even stand, understand what I'm doing. It's like the old man in me wants to do this, and the new man in, in me wants to do that. And there's this pull going on. He says, I do the things that I don't want to do. Because it's this, this tension that he feels between the old man and the new man in and of himself. And, and this, is, this can be a confusing place. And, and, and for a lot of Christians, man, it's not a place that feels comfortable because it feels like a constant fight. Now, this brings us to the why question. Why? Why do we need to put off the old self? And I think that there are several reasons here. Let me go through a couple real quick. First, I think the reason we do this is because Paul tells us to put off the old self with the authority of Jesus. He's not making a mere suggestion of like, hey, yeah, it might be nice to take off the old self. He's saying, in the authority of Jesus, this opens up in verse 17, now I say and I testify in the Lord. It's as if Jesus is telling us to do this. Now that should be enough for us, but but many of us, that's not. Take it as a mere suggestion. But we gotta ask, why does Jesus tell us to put us, why is Paul commanding us in the authority of Jesus to take off the old self? It's because Paul wants us to make room for the new self. In order for the new self to come, the old self has to go. Now, here's what happens. If you put on the new self on top of, think of it as if you got like a sweatshirt on and you go to put on another sweatshirt on top of that. First of all, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? But if you do that, what's gonna happen? You've got both of them on and it's a recipe for hypocrisy. Because you haven't expelled the old self. You you haven't got rid of the old way of life, so you can now embark on the new way. You're trying to do both at the same time. It's you say one thing, you do another. Or your inside doesn't match the outside. So you've got the inside sweatshirt of the old self that's still very much on. It's even closer to your heart. But you're trying to portray this external thing. Now, you don't have to read very far into the, the Gospels to see how Jesus feels about hypocrisy. In fact, it's it's perhaps the thing that Jesus critiques and condemns the most among the Pharisees, right? That they clean the outside of the cup, but have no regard for what's on the inside. Jesus wants his disciples to have integrity, to be single-minded. 
So he doesn't want us to be disciples who follow in a way uh, that, that's, that's uh, hypocritical. He wants us to be genuine, to, be, to be, have authenticity and have integrity. Now, the second reason that Jesus tells us to put off the old self is because Jesus is humane. Jesus is the most humane person to walk the face of this earth. And when he tells us to put off the old self, he's trying to save us from living a life that is less than, a life that is subhuman. Because that's what happened. It talks about we've been corrupted by these deceitful desires. So, so that idea of corruption, that, that sort of deteriorating, the life that we have is less than what is meant to be. Now, some people, like I was saying before, get tired of this tug of war, right? Because it's an ongoing fight between the old self and the new self. And you just get to the point where you're so worn out, you're so tired, and you say, I hate suppressing the old self. I hate the idea of having to put off the old self. Because the Bible, it tells me to do the things that I don't really want to do, and it tells me not to do the things that I want to do, right? Anybody relate to that? I do. I just, I'm fed up with it. It's annoying to me. I don't want to do it, so I'm just going to stop it. And like, why can't I just do me? Why can't I, I do life the way that I want to? Because after all, if, if I'm in Christ, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven, right? Why, why can't I just keep going my own way and let things shake out and fingers crossed, I'm going to make it across you know, the pearly gates here? Listen, you, you can try to let the old self and the new self coexist, but it's not going to go well for you. You, you do that. Like, you, you kind of let up on the old self. You kind of give over the tug of war. You put yourself at a great danger. Because if the old self is left to run amok, if, if the old self is unrestrained, it will continue to undermine everything good that Jesus is trying to change in your life. He, he's going to, the old self will continue to pull you into a place where your heart is, your heart is hard. You're resistant to God. Like, you won't be able to hear the spirit who, who moves with conviction and prompts us towards righteousness. If you let the old man run the show, you're going to move backwards. You're going to be like the seed that gets choked out in the parable of the soils. Right? The seed gets planted, but the weeds grow up, chokes it out. You let the old man continue to grow, it's going to choke out the new man. At the very least, you're going to live a, a, a less than human life, a less than life that God wants to give you. And Jesus has such a high regard for you and for the rest of humanity that he wants to bring us out of the old way, out of the corrupt way, and bring us into this full and abundant life. Now, if you let the old self carry on, you're going to squander that gift that Jesus gives you. Oh, dude, third C.S. Lewis. You're going to settle... He says, you're going to settle for mud pies in the back alley because you can't envision a vacation at the beach. See, that's what the old self is. It's, it's settling for mud pies instead of getting to play in the clean sand, the, the blue crystal water. can't envision it. And Jesus, his heart breaks when he sees us gravitating back to the old self because it's so inhumane. It's not good for us. It's not good for the people around us. And so Jesus mercifully, says, put it off. Now, the ultimate reason why, though, like the thing that gets beneath everything, 
The ultimate reason why you put off the old self is because that is not who you are anymore. Paul says, he, he talks about, listen, here's the way of the Gentiles. You've been callous. You've given yourself up for sensuality and impurity. And he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. That's not your identity. That's not who you are. And he goes on, he says, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So he's saying, listen, you might be in this room today and like you just kind of relate to the old self. It's like I'm, I'm very much living in my old self. Now, that might be because you've never heard about the good news of Jesus. That he's given you a new identity. He's given you a new way to live in this crazy world. But for those of us who have already received Christ, the old self is not how we were, how we were taught in the way of Christ. That's not who you are anymore because on us, the light of Christ has shone into the darkness. We're no longer in the dark. Our, our eyes have been opened. There's been a revelation. Our, our hearts have been illuminated by the gospel of Christ. He tells us that we were once far off. Like that, that, that's what he talks about. The old self was alienated from the life of God. See, that, that's your old way. And now, what's he say? You've been brought near. You've been adopted. You're in the family. God swoops you up in his arms. When we see the gospel for the first time, our ignorance is trumped by the relentless grace and mercy of Jesus. The blinders come off. Now, as I talk about why we put off the old self, there might be this temptation to, to flip the horse, or, you know, car before the horse here. To think that in order for me to be qualified to approach Jesus, I have to get my life cleaned up first. That, that I have to eject the old self to make room for Jesus to come into my life, and then I start going. That's religion. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus meets you right where you are. So right now, if you're feeling, man, my, my mind is darkened, my heart is hard, Jesus can meet you right there. You don't have to do a single thing. He stands right now, ready to greet you with open arms. Because before you had any idea that there was such thing as an old man and a new man, Jesus had definitively dealt with your old self for you on the cross. Your old self has been nailed to the cross. The, your, your old ways of sin, rebellion, of ignorance, all of the times that you opt to have something other than God, when you choose creation over a creator, for all of those times, Jesus takes that upon himself. He says that all of our sin was placed upon him, that he became sin who knew no sin. That's our sin that was put upon him. And it was nailed there to the cross. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I was crucified with Christ. It was a past tense thing. It's not that I'm, I'm dying and eventually it will be a crucified. For Paul, he, this is the already not yet. You're already dead to sin. And he says, you've already been raised with him. And you're already seated with him in the heavenly places. You're already clothed in his righteousness. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is already happened things. But now the, the inside has to work its way out. Right? The already, but not yet. 
And the way that we live into the already not yet is that when you see the glory of the gospel is that you, seeing Jesus put the death blow to the old self, you see him to his casket. Say, Jesus, I see you you gave him the one-two punch. He's down for the count. I'm just going to go ahead and put him to rest. Let's, Let's try to bury him six feet under. When you see the gospel, you'll want to strip away the old self. Like, why would you want, if you, if you experience the gospel, why would you want to turn your back on Jesus and that new life and go back to your old ways? It's like Proverbs talks about like a, to- a dog returning to its vomit. It's senseless. See, when we put the old self to death, when we, when we put off the old self, this is evidence that the new self has been created in you right now that the new self exists in you. Because you're fighting, it's evidence that Jesus has shown his light on your heart. Now, let me close here with some practical stuff real quickly. How do we put it off? So if we say, here's the old self, a really ugly old self, let's not go back to it. Here's why we need to put it off. How do I actually do that? How do I get rid of, how do I expel the old self? Now, notice when Paul says, when he's, he's making a command here in verse 22, he says, put off your old self. Who's he talking to? He's talking to you and me. He's saying that the work of sanctification, the work of putting off the old self, is not a matter of sitting back and waiting for God to do something. Like, God, I, I wish you would just zap this annoying thing out of me. That's not at all what he said. It's not sit back and wait for God to do the work. He he calls us into this work. He says, use your agency. Use the God-given grace and, and energy that you have, and then at the same time, draw from the grace and power of the Holy Spirit because this is like a synergistic thing that you're partnering with God in the process of your sanctification, and the Spirit is the, the driving force here. The grace and the power of the Holy Spirit is what helps us, that continually helps us to push off the old self. And in Colossians chapter 3, because there's a lot of parallels between Ephesians and Colossians, it's believed that that both books of the Bible, or both letters were written at about the same time from the same jail cell. There's a lot of the same language here. But in Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses stronger language. He doesn't just say put off the old self. He says, put to death what is earthly within you. Put to death. He, he's saying, you, you got to put your foot on the throat of the old self. Or, or in the words of, of John Owen, he says, kill your sin, lest sin be killing you. See, the stakes are high. The stakes are high for us. That if we don't deal with, if we don't, the, the old word is mortify, if we don't put to death the old self, it's going to try to sneak up on us and take us out, try to take out the new self. It says, kill your sinless sin, be killing you. And the best way to kill your sin is to starve it. The best way to kill your sin is to starve it. If, if, you're, if your desires are for sensuality, if your desires are, are greedy for every impure thing, you have to deprive yourself of those things. 
Paul says in Galatians 5, do not gratify the flesh. Don't feed the old self, because the more you feed it, the more the old self gets bigger and stronger, and before you know it, it's a Goliath that you won't be able to take down. He says, starve it. You, you avoid the things that would feed the old self. Now, for the, there's a lot of different people in here with a lot of different struggles, with a lot of different temptations, but here's a few ways that you might starve the old self. Delete social media, or at least limit it, because what social media does for a lot of us, it, 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 it makes us greedy, it makes us jealous, it makes us gossip, it just, it's food for the old self. It's not helpful, it's not making you love Jesus more, it's feeding the old self. Maybe you need to delete social media. Maybe you need to... Maybe you need to monitor what kind of music you're listening to. And I'm not going like the old Pentecostal stuff, let's go burn CDs and stuff. I like, I like secular music. I'm a big hip-hop fan. But there is some stuff that I'm listening to. It's like, I just can't do it. I've got to turn it off. It's bad for my soul. And I feel that. I feel that old man kind of bubble up. What, uh, maybe movies or, or TV that you're watching. Maybe there's bad relationships that are just destructive that are pulling you back into the old ways. What are those things that you need to just cut off, starve? And whatever it is, whatever, you, whatever the spirit right now is convicting you of to say, this is what, this is, what is, is derailing you. This is what's holding back the, old, or the new self from, from flourishing. Whatever it is, cut it out because it is deadening your sight. It is hardening your heart. Now, when we go about this act of starving the old self, um, brute force and sheer will of abstinence can work momentarily. Like if you say, all right, from this day forth, I'm never going to do this again. It could work. I mean, if you're really self-disciplined, it could work. But usually how this works is if you, if you take one thing out, it creates a vacuum and something else is going to come in and fill it. And if you're not intentional about what you're using to fill that vacuum, you're going to just be, it's going to be the same ride on a different horse. I just made that up. Is that a saying? I don't know. But that's what it's going to be like. The same, same way, just a, a different vehicle. This is where the Puritans are just killing it here. Thomas Chalmers says, here's the most effective way to put the old self to death. And you starve it, and the way you starve it is by the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, you find something that you love so much more that it just, it, it, it just dominates your thoughts, that, that takes you to a place where you don't even think about the old stuff anymore because you found something so epic, something so glorious that it just consumes you. It, it's, it's the equivalent of like trading in a McDouble, which that's trash food, guys. Trading in a, McDo, uh, a McDouble for a porterhouse. That, that's the, it, why would you want to eat a McDouble when there's a porterhouse sitting right in your face? That's the expulsive power of a new affection, something that, that just grabs your desires, that grabs your affections to a greater degree than anything else. And what is that new affection? What is that? What, what has the power to expel the old self? Jesus. 
Jesus is your only hope at putting off the old self. He's the only thing that you will find that can totally satisfy your deepest desires. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, I mean, I mean we're going to get into it next week, but he talks about how you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. You fix your eyes on Jesus, what comes into your eyes, into your mind, shapes your heart, shapes your affections. Now, this is why Paul talks about earlier on in Ephesians, the riches of Christ. He's saying, listen, the depths of the riches of Christ, of his love for us, he's unsearchable. That this is so powerful, so strong, that it'll pull you out of even the most binding former way of life. It's so good that you don't have to look elsewhere. And so we as Christians set out on this new walk of sanctification with Jesus, with the church. Because we don't do this in isolation. We do it with our brothers, brothers and sisters, right? Our MC family comes alongside of us and is able to say, hey, I think the old self is rearing its ugly head again. And then it's like, I think you might be right. Let's go put that to death. And it's like, let's do it. That's what family's for. That's what church family's for. And it leads us into this lifestyle of repentance where we're turning away from the former way of life and walking into the arms of Jesus. We're starving the old self and we're feasting on Jesus. And every Sunday that we come to the Lord's table, that's what we're doing. This, is, this meal is a meal of protest. It's saying, I will not let the old self continue to go on. God uses the Lord's Supper as a supernatural grace to squash the old self in us. Because every time it draws our eyes to Jesus, that it was his body that was broken for us, right? It was his body that was broken because of my old self. It was his blood applied. And when I cling to the blood and the body of Jesus, what happens? I'm remade. I am a new creation. And so I don't, I don't merely take this meal as a sinner. I mean, it's true. Yeah, like go back to the Reformation. We are both simultaneously sinners and saints. See, we take this meal as those who are victorious. It's a celebration meal because Jesus has dealt with the old man once and for all, and this is what we need to help continue to put him to death till he's in the grave. Father, we thank you that you've provided everything that we need for life and godliness, that that even though we're foolish and we, we press on on our own way, we want to do life our own way, you are constantly calling us back to yourself. You want us to be changed, to be transformed, that we would be more like you. God, I pray that, that in putting off the old self and putting on the new self, that you would help us to change from one degree of Christ-likeness, from one degree of glory to the next, so that when, when you come back and you claim this bride for yourself, when you claim Sacred City Church, she would be spotless and without blemish, that she would embody all of the glory in which you have implanted in us, God, that it would be to, to the praise of your glorious grace. Not because we're worthy, not because we're capable, but because you, Jesus, are capable. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. 